The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. So today, I will be closing this very brief three-part series that uh, we're calling Homesick. And it's been this exploration of this shared longing that all of us experience for a place called home and how God's Word helps us to understand this universal search for home. And I just want to begin by asking you, what are the thoughts and emotions that are stirred up in your own heart when you hear the word home? I think when we think about home, we naturally think about a place, and it makes sense, right? A location, whether it's your current home or the home of your childhood. But home is so much more than just the location on a map, isn't it? Home is a place where we find the kind of comfort and security that we cannot find anywhere else. In a brutal, brutal world where, truthfully, we're unsure of where we fit in, home is that place of belonging, of being fully known and yet fully accepted, as we've been talking about. I, it sort of draws to mind this whole Syrian refugee crisis that has been ongoing in the, year, in the news for years now. Um, it's interesting that we have more refugees globally than almost any other time in the history of the world. Um, and it's heartbreaking, these images that are coming across uh, social media and the television set. Uh, and it, I think, underscores how desperate is this longing for home, is that uh, families are willing to risk everything, even their lives, all in a hope to bring their family to a better place, a place that they could be safe and secure. And out of that desperation, we see this mass exodus of people searching for a place that they can say, this is home, this is safety, this is security, where I know my children will be okay. As we saw in the first message, when God first created the world, he made a home for us, a garden, a paradise, where we could live in God's loving presence. In other words, home is not only the longing inside every human heart, but it is also God's desire for us. In his love for us, God wants to make a home for every one of us. And so when God first created the world, he created it to be a place of security and care and love. But what the book of Genesis tells us is that rather than trusting in God's loving care over them, Adam and Eve thought that they knew better than God. And so they rebelled against him. And as a result of that rebellion, their nakedness became a source of shame. And they felt the need to hide from God. What's so interesting is that even after they made fig leaf clothing for themselves, that wasn't enough. They still felt this need to hide behind the bushes. And what that tells me is that it wasn't just the physical nakedness that caused the shame. It was something spiritual, something much deeper in their soul that they needed to hide from God, even after their bodies were covered. 
And what we see is that sin damaged not only their relationship with God, but their relationship with one another. Neither of them could take responsibility for their actions. Rather than protecting his wife, Adam blamed her for his own actions. And so this idea of a garden being a safe place of trust and love was utterly shattered by sin. In other words, home would not be the same again. And because of that sin in the garden, all generations that followed Adam and Eve would live in a spiritual state of wandering and homelessness. And so that's why, as I've been pointing out in the series, in the ultimate sense, we can never truly find our way home until we find our way back to God. Our search for home is ultimately an attempt to find our way back to God, who alone can restore us in the security and love that he alone can offer to us, the security that we long for. The Bible is interestingly, after Adam and Eve, filled with these stories of exile and wandering and homelessness. Abraham wandered in the wilderness His entire life uprooted from his family. Joseph was sold into slavery and spent his entire life basically as a foreigner living in Egypt apart from the rest of his family until the very end. The Israelites wandered for decades in the wilderness waiting to enter the promised land. And what's interesting is the Israelites, like all these other people, longed for a physical land that they could call home to bring an end to their wandering and exile. But what we find in the pages of Scripture is that God's plan for them was so much greater than that. The restoration that he intended was so much bigger. In other words, in order for God to bring us truly to the place of home, God knew that our relationship with him had to first be restored. And that's what Jesus accomplished on the cross, restoring that broken relationship with God and opening the way once again for us to receive that caring love of God in our lives because we willingly long for it, desire it, receive it. So we find these type of passages in Scripture like Psalm 23, 1 to 4. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Psalm 84, verse 1 through 4 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. These pictures that we're given in Scripture are pictures of a soul at rest. Pictures of a soul that has found its way back home to the shepherding love and care of God. And as I sort of developed in the last message, um, we have a part to play in all of this. I think many of us, I've done enough pastoral counseling to know, many of us actually have 
painful memories of our childhood homes. Maybe for you, your home was not a place of security and of love, but one of fear or loneliness or even rejection. And here is the thing is, as much as you swore you would do better than your parents did, as an adult, you're discovering how hard it is to realize all the hopes and dreams that you've had for a happy home. Some of you thought for sure that your marriage would be better than your parents, didn't you? But for some of us, we've been humbled by how tough it is to make marriage work. And truthfully, you're thinking, if we could be as good as my parents were, I would be happy. And it's not just confined to our household. Some of you have experienced the same struggle to find a true home in church. And when you first attended church, you're hopeful that you found the kind of loving and accepting community that you've always longed for, that where you can feel you could settle down your family. But then, sure enough, eventually, somebody disappoints you. Somebody hurts or offends you. And now you're not sure you're in the right place anymore. And maybe it won't be long before you move on in your continual search for another church that you can call home. It's the same way with friendships, isn't it? Once you were so close, once you did everything together, but then something happens in that friendship and you part ways and now you don't even speak to each other anymore. It could just take one conflict to rip apart what was once there for years, decades. And so whether it's our family or our church or even a circle of friends, our deepest hope for home is actually never fully realized, is it? And as much as we may feel that we are the victims in these situations, the Bible tells us that the truth is all of us are a part of the problem. That was the central point of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son that we looked at the last time. And I pointed that out in that last message, is that as beautiful and moving as that reconciliation is between the father and the younger son that represents our reconciliation with God, that's not how the story ends that Jesus told. You see, the easiest, the the, the family still did not receive the full healing because the older son couldn't stomach the idea of forgiving his younger brother. And the easiest person to blame in this story is the prodigal, isn't it? The younger son who practically destroyed that family with his reckless living. But by the end of the story that Jesus tells... It's actually the self-righteous older brother and his refusal to show mercy to his younger brother that's the greatest threat to the family and the healing that needs to take place for this broken family. The biggest problem with any attempt to find home in this life is that home is always filled with broken and sinful people. 
And as much as we gladly welcome God's grace for our own failures, it's much harder to extend that same grace to others, isn't it? James chapter 4 verse 1 says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? What James is saying is, whenever we get into conflicts with other people, our immediate instinct is to blame the other person. Well, if you hadn't done that, all of this wouldn't have happened. And what James is saying over and over again is that if you are a follower of Christ, what the Holy Spirit invites you to do is start with yourself, to look in the mirror and realize how the war that is waging within your own heart is contributing to all the relational problems that are ongoing in your life. And the point of all this is that our struggle to experience a genuine homecoming is not a matter of simple geography, of finding the right place, the right family, the right church, the right group of people, the right friends. It's about the work that God must first do in us so that we are capable of experiencing the joy of a happy home. Tim Keller writes this, All the many exoduses and many homecomings of the Bible failed in the end to deliver the final and full homecoming the prophets promised and everyone longed for. Why? One reason was the brokenness within human beings. Israel in particular and the human race in general was still mired in selfishness, pride, and sin. We are oppressed by conflicts within our own hearts. We need a radical change in our very nature. As Keller points out, unless God radically changes something in our own hearts, we can never truly experience home as a place of love and acceptance. In other words, it's our selfishness, our sin, that constantly undermines that experience of home that we long for. But the gospel promise is this. When God saves us, he also changes us, making us people who can create a home for others. In other words, the security and comfort of home is not only a gift that we receive from God, but it is also a responsibility given to us who have received God's mercy and his love to extend that same grace to others. And all of us have a part to play in creating this place of acceptance and love for one another. 1 John chapter 4, 7 to 12 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. 
in that story of the prodigal son, the older brother just could not understand that he was as much in need of his father's mercy and forgiveness as his younger brother. And so as these verses in 1 John point out, how can we refuse love to others when every one of us are in desperate need of that love and mercy of God? When we can truly understand that, we can begin to build the kind of home that God longs for us to experience. Edith Schaefer writes this, Time spent in yelling for what is not possible means it is lost for the use of what is possible. When people insist on perfection or nothing, they get nothing. When people insist on having what they daydream as a perfect relationship, they will end up in having no relationship at all. When people waste the time they could have by screaming for more, they will have no time at all. The waste of what could be by demanding what cannot be is something we all have lived through in certain periods of our lives, but which we need to be put behind us with resolve. Now, what is Schaefer saying? Listen. In any healthy relationship, there ought to be a sense in which we can shape and influence one another positively. But I think what Schaefer is getting at is this. The truth is that often our attempts to change people in our lives is driven more by our anger and our disappointment than our love for them. Because they don't measure up to our standards. Because they didn't live up to our expectations. And the truth is, sometimes it's not even about trying to change them, is it? We just want to give them a piece of our minds. Making them understand how unhappy we are with them. How much they've let us down. And when we approach relationships with that spirit, we don't give others room to breathe, do we? Room to make mistakes. Room to be human. Because a big part of what makes any place a home is the patience and grace that we can extend to one another. And I, I want to genuinely challenge every one of us in this room today with wrestling with that. How do I affect the people in my life? based on the expectations that I have on them. Maybe every one of us needs to look hard in the mirror at ourselves and see, how am I contributing to the building of home in the communities of which I am a part? Maybe the truth is that in your misguided efforts to love your children, you are smothering them. Maybe the same is happening in your marriage or your small group or your circle of friends. Sometimes we become so demanding of others. And what we realize is that we are robbing them of the same grace and patience that we need from God. Underneath all of our desires and efforts to help people change has to be the rock-solid foundation of unconditional love and acceptance. Why? Because that is how God treats us. And if you don't understand that about yourself, 
you don't understand the gospel. What I'm simply saying is this. If your search for home has been filled with heartbreaks and unfulfilled hopes, maybe what God is inviting you to do is not to point the finger at others, but to say, what is going on in my own heart that is making home so elusive a goal, so hard for me to experience, whether it's in church or in my family or in my friendships? I think that is one of the invitations that God gives to us. I desire to make a home for you. But in reaching that goal, there must be a change in your own heart to make you more like me, to be able to love as I love and forgive as I forgive and accept as I accept you. And so the Bible makes it clear that all of us have a part to play in this work of God of homemaking by the way we treat one another. Whether it's in our friendships or families or through a church, we can experience this powerful, life-giving experience of home what God wants for us. But there is also the hard reality that we live in a broken world. And the truth is, in as much as we get glimpses of the joy of home, there are a lot of struggles and a lot of setbacks. What I'm saying is this. You can do everything right, and things can still go so wrong, can't they? Ever experienced a holiday dinner or a family vacation like that? You can make the most wonderful meal at Thanksgiving and invite all the guests. But it doesn't guarantee some magical moment of connection and love, does it? You can spend lots of money getting your family to the most wonderful place on earth. And there in that paradise, you and your spouse barely talk to each other because you got in a fight the day before you left for the vacation, right? Have you ever experienced the brokenness of that? I remember... um, a year in advance, I'm not normally like this, but a year in advance, I planned Betty and my 10-year anniversary. And I booked the seven-day cruise to the Caribbean. And for a year, I had been anticipating this time together because uh, with four kids at that time, it was just crazy, you know? We had really no alone time. And somewhere in the midst of, by day three, um, We were screaming at each other in our room. And part of it was that I feel, I felt like Betty was not having as good a time as she ought to. (laughs) And it was letting me down. She was a downer, you know? Never mind that she was seven months pregnant at the time. (laughs) just shows how thick-headed I was. So there she is, seven months pregnant. And, you know, we're trying to go snorkeling. We're trying to play with dolphins, trying to do all this. And she just is sitting there, you know, and wanting to sleep all the time. And I just became so upset (laughs) because this was supposed to be the vacation of a lifetime. I splurged and blew way more money than we had at the time. But this is the brokenness of life on this earth, isn't it? 
Is there something so deep in us that longs for these moments of connection, that longs for intimacy and love, and yet we do everything to try to engineer those moments, and yet somehow there's an emptiness to it all that never seems to satisfy. Tim Keller writes, Home is a powerful but elusive concept. The strong feelings that surround it reveal some deep longing within us for a place that absolutely fits and suits us, where we can be or perhaps find our true selves. Yet it seems that no real place or actual family ever satisfies these yearnings, though many situations arouse them. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about this phenomenon in his books. He had a lot to say about these yearnings of the human heart for the things that, for a yearning so deep that the things in this world could never satisfy. And sometimes he described it in the framework of beauty, that it seems to be some type of beauty that all of us are pursuing that we just never quite find. In other books, he wrote of it in the language of nostalgia, of a longing for a past that we've romanticized and craved in the deepest way possible. Something transcendent. And yet, as Lewis argues, every time we try to relive those moments of our past, it never quite meets our expectations or fulfills that longing. Commenting on this, Lewis writes, These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy but the truest index of our real situation. In other words, Lewis is saying, all of that nostalgia, all of that yearning is pointing us to something real in the human soul that this world can never satisfy. All of us have an unquenchable longing for home because as the Apostle Peter said, we are all foreigners and exiles in this world. Our deepest longing for home can never be satisfied in this life fully because that longing is a longing for the garden. The perfect security and intimacy that Adam and Eve experienced before sin entered this world. And that is what God promises to us in the life to come because of what Jesus did for us. Matthew 8, verse 19 to 20 says, Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus' testimony of himself was that he left the security of his own home and became homeless in his mission to make a home for us. And the truth is, we can experience glimpses of that home in this life 
I think that's a big reason why church exists, is that we can know a spiritual family beyond our own physical family. But we can never know it fully in this life. In another garden, Jesus would cry out to his Father for strength to bear the suffering that he was about to bear on our behalf. And so what Jesus did for us, we get tastes of in this life. But the yearning that can never be quenched is truthfully for another home that awaits all of us who are in Christ Jesus. John chapter 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That's the promise of God for every one of us is in our struggles to finally come home in this life. That unquenched yearning will one day be fully satisfied when Christ returns and truly claims us to come home. I'm going to just close with this. Um, during our years as missionaries in Kenya, um, back 15 years ago in 2004 when we first arrived, uh, Betty was pregnant. And so within a few months of arriving in Kenya, uh, she gave birth to Judah, our youngest. And so after Judah was born, while we were still in Nairobi and before we headed back up country to where we were working, we had to take him to the U.S. Embassy in Nairobi in order to register his birth and apply for his uh, U.S. passport. It was the most comical moment because we had to take his passport picture when he was one day old. And the requirement on the passport is that the passport holder's eyes have to be open. <laughs> so it was the most bizarre experience trying to get a one-year-old, one-day-old infant to open its eyes as <laughs> so we were like, kind of like trying and then let it go real fast and taking the picture and his eyes were shut immediately. <laughs> but for two seconds, his eyes were open long enough that we actually got the picture. Um, anyway, I don't even know why I'm sharing that part of it, but um, so we get through all of the, you know, I don't know if you know, but in the 90s, the U.S. Embassy in Kenya was bombed. Hundreds of people died. And so they built this enormous edifice filled with unbelievable security to replace it. And so after we got through all that security, we ended up in the consular office waiting room for U.S. citizens. And when I walked into that waiting room, I was immediately overwhelmed with a sense of emotion. Um, because entering into that waiting room felt like I entered a portal that transported me right back to the United States. It was basically as if they took an entire U.S. office building and just dropped it in Africa. All the furniture was American. All the magazines on the table were American. All the workers were American. 
It was CNN, not the BBC News, that was playing on the television set in the waiting room. Even the toilets were American. (laughs) And I know that sounds silly, but the British do not know how to build toilets, all right? Their toilets are horrible. And so to sit on an American toilet again (laughs) was like so comforting. Um, And until that moment, I hadn't realized how much I had missed home, how much I missed America. And so for the first time in my life, I hoped that our wait would be really long in that waiting room because I wanted to be there as long as possible. I didn't want to leave that room because it made me feel like I was back in America. And as I was thinking through that, um, uh, my thoughts went to my children and what they would think about all of this. And so 15 years ago in 2004, I wrote this update that we sent out to our supporters. And I want to, I apologize, it's a little bit long, but I want to read to you what I wrote in that update toward the end of it. As I sat in the waiting room reflecting on all this, my thoughts drifted to Judah, whom I held in my arms, and who would probably never have the same kind of identification with America as I do. Though he is technically a U.S. citizen, would he ever truly consider America his home? Would he ever have the same visceral experience of homecoming as we did entering a U.S. embassy? What label best describes my children? Korean Kenyan? American Kenyan? Korean American Kenyan? Many recent books have explored the identity struggles of missionary kids, often labeled third culture kids, because many cannot integrate fully into either their parents' culture or the culture of the mission field in which they grew up. Having wrestled with identity issues as a Korean immigrant in America, I wondered how much more my children would struggle trying to figure out who they are when they are old enough to care about such questions. What will they go through when they return to the U.S. for their college education? Will they look back to Kenya as their home? Will they one day embrace America as their true home? What will their reaction be to the Korean-American community? As a parent, my heart was heavy, contemplating my children's future and the potential struggle they may endure seeking acceptance and identification within a larger community. But as I, lift, as I was lifting a prayer for my children regarding all this, it struck me that there is something beautifully biblical about the struggle of third-culture children, of kids. What if this wrestling to find a sense of home in this world is a blessing in disguise? What if the real problem is that the rest of us are too comfortable and at home in this present world? Perhaps missionary kids are the ones who understand better than anyone else what Peter meant when he told the church that we are aliens and strangers in the world. So many whose lives are recorded in Scripture seem to have lived like aliens and strangers in their generation. Until the end of his life, we are told that Abraham died as a wanderer living in tents. And so too was the testimony of many others in the Bible who followed after God's promises. Their faith set apart set them apart and set them on a journey. Home would never seem the same again. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, all these faithful ones died without receiving what God had promised them. But they saw it from a distance and welcomed the promise of God. 
They agreed that they were no more than foreigners and nomads here on earth. And obviously, people who talk like that are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had met the country they came from, they would have found a way to go back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a heavenly city for them. I don't know how Joy, Noel, Luke, Bethany, and Judah will each struggle with these identity issues as they grow older. But my prayer for my children is that in their journey to find belonging, they will find the ultimate comfort in knowing that their Heavenly Father is busy preparing a place for them and that one day they will know what it truly means to be home. As we think about um, this yearning, this universal yearning inside the human heart for a safe place that we can call home, I think we have to fully acknowledge that our experience of home in this broken world is filled with just that brokenness and pain. And the truth is, we cannot go back in time and undo the things of our past, the pains we've endured. And I think there's a sense in which all of us sort of feel like homeless wanderers. I know some of you feel that way about church. This desperation to find a church that feels like it fits for you and your family. And you still feel like you're looking. And I feel the pain of that. The pain of people who have disappointed you that you once put your trust in. Maybe the pain of Parents that just could not love you because they were dealing with their own issues. And maybe you also know the pain of your own weakness and failure as a husband, as a wife, as a, as a parent, as a friend, and the people that you've hurt or abandoned your life. And we have to keep fighting for this. It's a worthy fight. We can't just give up. I think we have to keep seeking God's grace to make us people capable of showing the love of God to others and building the kind of community that God wills in our households, in our church, in our small group. We've got to fight for it. But even as we fight, I think there is this recognition that even in the best of moments, that joy is only partial. And rather than that leading to despair, or anger, or resentment. I think what Scripture offers to us is let that lead to a recognition that what your soul is ultimately longing for is something that this world can never satisfy. And so we have the hope of the return of Christ and the restoration of all things when He will make all things right. Everything broken, He will heal. And we will finally one day say, I am home. I am home. I just invite you to pray for that hope and that faith in your own heart this morning. And as we do, just uh, our worship team will come and lead us in a time of response through singing in just a moment. But would you just come before the Lord and make that your prayer? God, all of these unmet hopes, all of these yearnings and longings for home, that never quite materialize. Lord, 
Give me the faith to direct all of that toward you and the hope of your return and the hope of your promise that you are preparing a place for all of us who are in Christ Jesus.